Hello, and welcome to another ICE Tech Talks podcast, part of the ICE CPD programme. I'm James Crumley, a Knowledge Manager here at the ICE. In this episode, we're exploring how engineers can challenge conservatism in design and construction in order to drive efficiency and outcomes on geotechnical projects. To discuss this topic and share their thoughts, I have two exciting guests joining me. Lynn Masterson, Technical Director, Ground Engineering at ACOM, and Tony O'Brien, Global Practice Leader for Geotechnics at Mark McDonald. Lynn, do you want to say hello and tell us a bit about yourself and your background? Hi, thanks for inviting me and having me on. So I'm a geotechnical engineer with around 20 years experience in the industry. And my background is um, primarily major infrastructure schemes, mainly in the UK and Ireland. And I have seen a large number of changes over the last 20 years, some of which I'm happy to talk about today. Thank you. And Tony, same to you. Do you want to say hello and tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah. Hi, James. Uh, thanks for inviting me here. Um, yeah, I've got about 40 years uh, experience in geotechnics. Um, now I'm globally active on a range of uh, major projects around the world, California, Southeast Asia and UK. Uh, I've also been quite active on uh, various industry guidance documents. Thank you, Tony. So staying with you to start, how, how do you see conservatism in the geotechnical industry appearing day to day? And I guess how big of a challenge is it? Yeah, the most obvious uh, examples were over conservatism is um, excessive predictions of movement, unreasonably conservative limits on allowable movement. So obviously in limit state design, which are increasingly used around the world now, EC7 obviously in the UK, both sides of that equation are important. So if there's an over-conservative prediction of movement, that can lead to conservative design. But if you compound that with an unreasonable limit on allowable movement, then you can get grossly conservative designs as, as an outcome. Uh, another example as well is um, excessive steel density in uh, underground structures as well, which has been driven by EC2 largely. And how big of a I guess a challenge, do you think it is? It's a huge issue. You know, if we're trying to drive towards uh, reduced carbon use, these sort of issues um, are coming really counterproductive. So it's something the industry really needs to address in terms of how it changes the way it's working. Uh, These are not just technical issues, but there's also contractual, commercial, and the way projects are organised. Both need to be tackled. Thank you. And Lynn, how are you seeing it day-to-day in your work? I think a lot of it goes back to basics and we are not doing adequate ground investigations at the correct time through the project life cycle. So on a number of our major infrastructure schemes, there simply isn't enough information to make proper judgments on the the correct parameters that we have to use in analysis. We're finding in a lot of major infrastructure schemes that the programme is extremely challenging and ground investigations are, are being squeezed either to be in a much reduced scope or information is not available in adequate time to start the design process. And I think that's having a huge impact on conservatism because people are having to make judgments and decisions based on a lack of information, which normally means more conservative. Hmm. So, yeah, yeah, I could just sort of totally support that. Um, it's about getting better quality data at the right time. One of the intents behind introducing uh, limit state design codes was trying to stimulate better ground investigation. Um, but unfortunately, that, that hasn't happened. 
Um, so limit state design in theory can lead to improved practice and design, but the devil is in the detail in terms of what you're actually doing in terms of better investigation, better analysis, better decisions around the limits you're going to impose. So, um, you know, it's a really key issue in terms of getting better quality data at the right time. I guess on that, is is there an obvious solution, I guess, to getting that better ground investigation data? As you say, we sort of things have been done and tried in recent past, but mm. they haven't had the impact. I guess, is there something you would like or can see that is the way forward? Um, it, it's, it's partly around clients recognizing the importance and the value. Certainly, I've worked with clients in the past who've seen the value and invested in that, and um, it, we've had much better outcomes as a result. But it needs that vision and that awareness of the value first. Lynn, would you agree? Sort of, is is it? I guess down to the clients and vision is that the best way forward? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think it's really important that um, genetics is considered throughout the whole project life cycle. So we're thinking about the ground and geohazards from inception to, to construction completion, essentially, so that we can look at the information that's needed. And what I find quite useful, if time allows, is to phase things like ground investigations and the projects I've been involved in that has actually had phased investigations that's allowed us to increase our knowledge as the game design progresses have been far more successful. Hmm. The same with you, Lynn. I, think, I guess thinking about clients, I guess how, how are you seeing them I guess, driving change and I guess what more do you want to see from them uh, you know, in this area for tackling conservatism? From a client perspective, I, I would like to see two things. I would like to see clearly much more investment in ground investigation, as we've just discussed. But also I think that um, I would like clients to challenge themselves and some of the um, requirements that they put on their, their infrastructure, for example, settlement criteria on bridges, on approaches to bridges, is getting increasingly stricter, but I'm not sure whether people understand the consequences that that has on the design and on the actual construction techniques that's required to meet those client requirements. So quite like clients to challenge themselves in what they're actually asking consultants mm -hmm. and contractors to, to produce. And Tony, is that, would you echo that sort of in terms of what, what you want to see from clients, I guess, sort of specifically in this yeah. area? Yeah, I think um, in, in terms of the whole procurement process, it's about uh, clients recognising value, and not just cost. Another really important aspect, um, which um, the Site Investigation Steering Group under Professor Littlejohn, probably a couple of decades ago now, emphasised the importance of continuity throughout the life cycle of a project. Um, so it's really important we get that. All too often, we have a fragmented process. It's nice to think of geotechnics as, as a chain um, and the outcome can be adversely affected if there's any weak links on, in that chain. Another way of thinking about it is the whole geotechnical triangle. Um, myself and Prof uh, Berland in the IC manual in the Foundation Design Decisions chapter, we outlined the importance of people recognising this, this process. So everybody needs to contribute. And if there's any weakness there along that whole life cycle, then the outcome can be really adversely affected. Perhaps another, another point which is worth making here is um, you know, Tazagi many years ago said around um, you know, geotechnics is not normally at the top of a client's agenda until something goes wrong. So as well as thinking about uh, conservatism, it's also important to recognise that 
things can go very badly wrong as well. You know, and the risks that we face in geotechnics can be, you know, have huge implications because often the impact on a critical path of projects. So it's more like a Talib type black swan event, which project team were perhaps completely unaware of. So these things need to be addressed through positive actions, mitigation actions, not just a normal contingency, which is often completely inadequate. Mm. And I guess we've talked a bit about the client side, I guess from the perspective of say engineers and contractors out there, sort of, I guess, what, what can they be doing, you know, perhaps beyond the sort of, you know, influencing and speaking to their clients about changing practices? What, what else can engineers and contractors do to sort of tackle conservatism and uh, drive a bit of change here? Well, in, in terms of um, linking design to construction, you know, that's a really important area in geotechnics. And obviously from my own point of view, um, I'd like to see the observational method used a lot more um, because you know that can really drive savings in terms of cost, time, actually improve safety. We've seen it and, and it's been done on several major projects in the past, but it, but it's all too often, you know, just not been used often enough, which is, which is sad because as well as thinking about risks, we also need to think about opportunities and the observational method can really deliver savings. But to make it happen more often, we, we've got to modify you know, the contracts we use and the commercial relationships so that we have more value engineering clauses and we are seeing improvements. So, for example, the latest version of NEC, NEC4, and the new versions of FIDIC, you know, there are value engineering clauses in there now. And perhaps the geotechnic practitioners just need to recognize that and then, you know, advocate for change so, so that everybody in the supply chain recognizes the opportunity and, and uses that sort of technique far more often. Yeah. Lynn, from your side, I guess, what, what would you like to see engineers and contractors do more you know, in, in, in this space? I would truly like to see contractors and engineers working together in collaboration to deliver infrastructure. And I think when that works, it works really well when we're all just pulling together for that sort of same common goal. I think what doesn't work from, from my experience is where we're not working as a unit. There's design happening without actually the contractors' input. So I think the, the procurement is actually extremely important and the actual collaboration has to happen. And not in isolation. Mm. Yeah, maybe uh, a key word there is trust, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, and to build trust takes time and effort. So the forms of contract that can encourage better trust and better relationships are, for example, things like early contractor involvement or progressive design builders known in North America. Also, partnering arrangements can be very valuable. Um, I, I've got direct experience of that in the past where working for clients like London Underground, British Airport, Airport Authority at Heathrow, where they were strong advocates of those partnering arrangements. And that really delivered you know, value. For example, at London Underground, we were working, I was working with a specialist uh, contractor cementation. We knew we were working on multiple projects over periods of years and, and we got better you know, because we developed trust. Because we, we had trust, we delivered innovation, we were confident about delivering it together, uh, and it was highly successful. Also, we had a, a very informed client there who, who understood the value of these relationships and also invested in investigation, coming back to the original point. Yeah. 
um, which reduced problems over unforeseen conditions. So, so this was a virtuous circle where you know there was positive experience from one project was taken into the next project, and the team got more confident uh, and, and bolder in what it was executing. Um, and that's something that we should be taking forward, you know, across formal projects. So these things are known about, but it's just about uh, clients seeing the value and having more confidence in those sort of relationships. Mm. So, Lynn, so I guess one of the things we talked about quite early on was around the data side of things. And I guess digital engineering and modeling has been one of the big changes in the industry over the last you know, 10, 20 years. I guess it has that had the desired impact in, in the ground engineering sector or is there still, I guess, limitations of what, we, what we're doing with what, we, what we've got? I think, I think both. I think that it has had an impact, but I think there are still limitations. And again, it goes back to the sort of age-old um, data. And if you have some good data, then digital can be a very powerful tool. If we don't have sufficient data, then it's not so powerful and interpretation becomes very, very difficult. I think the one one thing that always comes out of the, the digital tools is that it still needs quite a degree of interpretation. It still needs specialist people to understand what, what the model's actually telling us. And if, if we have the correct people and the correct amount of data, it can make quite a big impact on the projects that we're working on. And it can certainly be efficient and effective and help us deliver things quicker. Have you, have you seen you having to recruit different skills, I guess, into your team then to to meet that Absolutely. need in that way? Absolutely. I mean, we, we have certainly at ACOM, we have people who have transitioned, let's say, into um, being proficient and excellent using some of the digital tools. And we have recruited people who have a real digital bias. But it's really important that those people have a strong ground engineering background to be able to understand the information and what it's telling us and apply that to the, the problems that we have to solve. Yes, multi-skill, not single skills, I guess, in, that, in this case. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And Tony, I guess same to you. Uh, do you think we've made the most, I guess, of the changes that have happened in the wider um, construction I, engineering? I, I think we're the, we're the cusp of a, of a step change. If I look back um, in terms of what we've done over the last few decades, you know, the big step changes in practice that we've seen has been through really high quality interpretation of um, full scale performance in terms of instrumentation and monitoring. And now with digital developments, we can get better data from construction sites, more continuous data. So you know, we're creating these data mountains now, and we've got to get the value from that data. So, you know, there are real opportunities. Um, one of the areas that we've been investing in recently at Mott McDonald is in terms of real-time back analysis. We've got a really good collaboration with uh, a niche consultant called Salg, uh, Darwin Software, which facilitates real-time back analysis through machine learning algorithms. And on HS2 now, we are actually undergoing a trial in terms of using the technology the early signs are really encouraging, um, and that can release you know major value moving forward. Because there's obviously a lot of synergy with that technology with the use of the observational method as well. So there's sort of really big opportunities there, but um, we do need to get better at making sure the data is better quality for sure. So there needs to be um, you know, an awareness of that, and perhaps you know, getting the right people in place at the right time 
to make sure, for example, we're gathering instrumentation data early enough. So we've got a good baseline set of data to then understand what construction changes really are impacting uh, behavior. So there are some you know, huge opportunities moving forward, particularly if we combine that with good use of nonlinear finite element analysis. Um, so there's a, a recent survey report, uh, C791, about how we can better manage numerical analysis. So if we combine those things together, now there's huge opportunities in better understanding ground structure interaction, better modeling of ground movements, movements of uh, underground structures. So taking those things in combination, you know, we really do have an opportunity of moving forward in a positive way. And you've named a, f a few, Tony, but are there any, I guess, projects that come to mind that you feel are either fully embracing, I guess, this sort of desire to change or perhaps they're sort of picking up on it and you know, running running in certain areas? Well, as, as I've mentioned, um, in UK, um, HS2, I, I mentioned, you know, which is a huge scale project and, and just scale on its own, you know, drives more uptake of digital, um, but also in terms of um, understanding behavior better, you know, digital technologies can help us there. So, yeah, that's an example. There's also uh, examples in other parts of the world. Uh, work we're doing recently on in Singapore, Hong Kong, major project in the Silicon Valley in California, where, you know, use of digital technologies can, can really help us in, in terms of better interpretation of data. Because often data is gathered in a, in a negative sense in terms of ensuring a problem hasn't happened. Yeah. Um, but obviously we can get far more value if we really interpret that data and, and then we can then use it better for future projects mm. in similar geologies or similar design applications. Thinking about what's going to be driving this sort of going forward, is the whole sort of carbon reduction agenda at the moment, is that going to be a big driver to tackle conservatism in geotechnics, do you think, in the coming coming years? And, and, and I guess are you already seeing it where you know, the desire for reduced embedded carbons, for example, is challenging, I guess, some of the practices and design decisions we've been doing for, for many years. Absolutely. And I think it is becoming more of a factor. I think we're probably not as advanced, perhaps, as we would like to be. Again, it, a lot of it comes back to having good ground data. I feel like I'm repeating myself here. And having adequate information to be able to be efficient in design if we have, particularly in difficult ground conditions. Um, ground isn't a rigid structure. We can't deal with it like a rigid structure. So if we have good, good ground data, we can become most efficient and effective. We can reduce the number of piles. We can, from every, for example, reduce the number of piers, if that works. And if we, we get this quality of information, we, we don't build in conservatism as you do if you don't have that information because the unknown is the unknown yeah so i do think that by driving the data quality and the amount of data will be in the long run a good way to reduce the carbon impact of, mm. of infrastructure and what we do and tony you've seen this too where sort of carbon is I guess, helping, I guess, the conversations around sort of uh, tackling conservatism or? Uh, I'd, I'd say carbon plus uh, environmental constraints is uh, driving change. So take, for example, um, 
the uh, major reclamation works we're doing in Hong Kong for the new third runway. There, the traditional approach in construction seawalls was um, to dredge through the soft muds, whereas now that's deemed to be environmentally unacceptable. So now we're doing deep ground improvement. So that's driving real change there. But I think just, just picking up on, on the point that Lynn made around um, data, uh, another development which perhaps clients need to think more about and the wider industry is the use of geotechnical baseline reports. Because the one thing is about getting data, but it's also the way it's interpreted. And at least at this, say, of the design build, uh, if a client procures a geotechnical baseline report, which is a contractual document, which defines the baselines that people need to assume to do their bids, that at least gets the project off to a better start in that you know, we're comparing apples or apples when we're comparing different bids. Um, so that would certainly be something which I'd like to see more of. And at least that would give us a, uh, a, a better foundation uh, to build from contractually and commercially. But for sure, you know, carbon is driving innovation. And the geotechnics industry can do fantastic things in that area in terms of, you know, the different ground improvement techniques which are available. But again, I'll come back to one of the points I raised right at the start, which is around having sensible limits on allowable movement. Um, because if somebody puts in a limit of, say, 10 millimeters allowable movement, and often these limits are completely arbitrary, there's not much you can do. Whereas if you have a more sensible limit of allowable movement, then there's all sorts of amazing technologies we can apply in terms of ground improvement, which can uh, save money, save time, save carbon. So, so that to do to achieve that though, perhaps it needs better understanding and, and um, collaboration between disciplines, in terms of structural engineers and geotechnical engineers working together far more closely than, than they often do. I was wondering if it, do you think there's a conversation to be had around, I guess, some of the standards and guidance we use in the industry? Do, do they need? I mean, do we need to look at some of them carefully over the coming years? to ensure we've got that flexibility uh, in places or? But possibly. I, I think there's actually a lot of good guidance documents already. I think it just needs more people to read those those guidance documents and, and actually apply them. Yeah. Um, so we've got lots of good guidance. I'd, I'd say the um, one area perhaps where we do need to look more seriously is in terms of earthworks and in terms of reuse of materials. I'd say there's a lot of opportunity there in terms of reusing materials that traps were thought of as being uh, inappropriate. So for example, in my own experience, I, uh, for the Wembley Stadium project, we reused London clay fill mm. as a structural backfill. Now that's normally never thought of, nobody would never think of doing that because of the concerns around swelling pressures. But actually all you need to do is design for those and, and design for movements to develop. Yeah. And provided your structure can accommodate those movements, it's actually perfectly fine. You know, we, we did that and, and it's been successful. That saved a huge amount of carbon and impact on the surrounding area in terms of taking material away, bringing it back again. So it just needs a, perhaps a more creative approach to how we uh, think about earthworks and the different uses of different materials. So I think that's an area where perhaps we do need to think more seriously around the specifications that we use. Yeah, lots of big asset owners are pushing that as well. You know, linked to I guess their priorities around the circular economy. There, yeah, yeah, they want us all to think about yeah. you know the embedded yeah. assets and materials we have and what we can do, do yeah. with them. Yeah, 
absolutely. Lynn, I guess the initial question to you around standards and guidance, do you see the conversation need to be have about any of them to give us the, the flexibility and change we want? Or, you know, I guess, is it more, I guess, the application and, uh, you know, the, the, the drive that's needed? I, 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 in my view, it's the application and the drive because I think the standards have sufficient flexibility to be able to deliver in a way that we need to deliver. I think the Earthworks issue is a good point and I, I think that a lot of work's been done to reuse existing material on site so it doesn't have to get exported. I worked in a project in Ireland recently where our contractor client had an arrangement with an adjacent site and we, we swapped film material because we had a bit of a mismatch on both projects. And I thought that was actually a really good thing to do because it meant that um, two contractors working together with a really good end product. And I'd like to see more of our clients thinking across the board about schemes that we've maybe got that are in a close geographical area and look at, look carefully at whether we can, we can make arrangements and put contractual um, clauses within contracts to encourage people to to recycle and reuse. Yes, because all you need is two contractors who aren't aware of what the other's doing, and that material goes yeah. goes off and is never seen. And absolutely, absolutely. So, Tony, I guess are there any other, I guess, barriers, obstacles, or challenges we've not sort of covered so far that uh, you feel members and professionals should should be considering? Uh, yeah, I think uh, one area particularly it needs looking at is uh, the role of cat-free checkers um, and the way they're used and the way they operate. Often cat-free checkers are brought in on a, on a relatively small uh, budget and, and time to, to do their work. So often, you know, they are constrained. So you end up with um, problems being identified which aren't problems at all. And that can drive, you know, excessive conservatism. Because then the main designer can be in a difficult position because they need to get agreement um, within a time frame as well. So often that, that can drive things from being slightly conservative to being very conservative. You know, an alternative which, is, which I've seen work well, particularly in North America, is the use of an expert panel. So these are very senior people with deep knowledge of geotechnics. Uh, and, and that can be far more positive because many of the issues in, in geotechnics are around conceptualization, just the assumptions are made and the key questions that need to be asked of people. Often if the right questions are being asked, you can find a solution quite quickly. And sometimes the cat-free checking approach, which tends to focus around a lot of number crunching, tends to just drive more conservatism or perhaps even just big issues simply not being identified. So that's certainly one area I'd like to look at. And, and are you seeing the the experts panels in the UK at all, or is that still mostly uh, North uh, America? There are examples, but too few and far between, for sure. So that's certainly something that needs uh, addressing. Um, perhaps a one over area. Perhaps I'd like to see more of, as well as more use of geotechnical baseline reports as well, which was mentioned earlier. But certainly that could be used more often. Lynn, anything, I guess, other final challenges from you or things we might have missed at all? One, one thing that I, I think is becoming, unfortunately, more and more common, and I've noticed this over the years, is the increase in litigation. And I, I do wonder whether that's had a conscious and an unconscious impact on some of the decision-making in geotechnics. I mean, particularly 
some of the ground conditions truly are unforeseen or unforeseeable that we come across, and that is a natural, and that, that's just, we're dealing with the unknown at times. And I, I'm really deeply concerned that this does drive some bad behaviours and it does cause some over-conservatism. So we're coming near to the end now. So I guess start with Lynn with you for a sort of final thoughts. I guess uh, you know, for the people listening today, if you had to sort of, I guess, tell them one thing or suggest one thing to them, them to go away and change or challenge um, about conservatism in the industry, what, what, I guess, what, what would you recommend they do? I, I think one of the, the key things that I would like people to do is, is think about geotechnics and ground engineering as part of the whole sort of project team and get some expertise early on and continue that all the way through the life cycle. Do a good desk study, use that information, let that drive some of your decision making and fundamentally do sufficient and adequate ground investigation because I think that will have a real impact on conservatism. And Tony, final thought from you as well. Yeah, it's also around um, you know, geotechnics practitioners advocating for change in terms of procurement to you know, get continuity through the projects in terms of the engagement of geotechnics professionals to, to really uh, ensure we recognise it's, it's a chain you know, and each, each link of that chain is really important. So it, it's really about geotechnics professionals to um, become perhaps more aware themselves of the importance of contracts and commercial relationships and, and advocating for change. Um, but building on what's been published before in terms of Latham, Egan, Wilson Home, so there's a lot of guidance in terms of what good looks like. Uh, I think we just got to implement it more super thank you very much both for for your time today and for sharing your your thoughts you can uh, learn more about this topic and find more podcasts videos and other resources uh, on the ic knowledge hub which you can access via ic.org.uk new content will be launched most thursdays this year so do keep a lookout this has been the ic tech talks podcast and i've been your host and producer james crumley we hope you can join us again soon goodbye